This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, August 26th. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. Keith is back. Keith, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. Some stuff happened while you were gone, so we're going to talk about a lot of that, uh, mostly the promotions, some players that are actually getting opportunities in the big leagues currently, and a few more who are going to be late season promotions as a result, likely of changes to the CBA. There's uh, some New incentives for players winning the Rookie of the Year award that go back to the team. Draft pick compensation, and it seems that might be spurring a little bit of of late-season action because we've reached the point in the year where a player can be promoted and not accrue enough service time to become ineligible for that rule in the future. So good for baseball when you have to break things down that way and explain that is the reason why we're seeing some of the most exciting young players in the game in August. Let's just make this more complicated. Yeah, it could just be merit. We could we could have a system that just puts the best players in the field. But this is better than what we had. So I guess we have that to uh, be excited about. But I want to start in Atlanta. Vaughn mm-hmm. Grissom with the big league club right now. I didn't expect him to play in the big leagues this year. I wouldn't have been no. surprised if you said we'll see him maybe in 2024, just based on his age right. and where he had played. Part of this was need, right? The actual depth in the organization because of injuries was being tested to the point where you could throw some 30-year-old veteran out there or you could just take a chance on someone in your system. And so far, so good. It's only been 15 games, but it's been a great 15 games to start Grissom's career. He's shown power. He's shown speed. How surprised are you that he has hit the ground running after just 22 games at AA before his promotion? Yeah, I was shocked. That they called him up. Um, I mean, he's different for a 21-year-old. He was high school draft pick. He was 11th round, but he was an overslot guy in 2019 draft. That was the year for folks who don't really follow the draft to remember where Atlanta uh, saved some money with some of their early picks. But rather than putting it all into one big name with an overslot bonus, you know, in the fourth or fifth round, they spread it out among multiple prospects in rounds 11 through 16 or so somewhere there. So, you know, 11 through 20, let's say, went after a bunch of guys giving them, you know, 300,000 to 700,000 or something like that, as opposed to say, you know, the year the Giants did that gave Kyle Harrison $2 million, put it all on one player. And Atlanta's strategy that year has looked pretty good so far. And Grissom, obviously the best of that group. I, I just say all that by means of saying he's better than an 11th round pick typically is. But he had pretty limited experience in the minors. He had, This was really a breakout season for him. He was a prospect coming into the year. But um, I, I also started to make this point and then kind of got away from it that, yeah, he's 21. But unlike a lot of 21-year-olds, we weren't waiting for, say, a ton of growth or projection here. There's a lot. I've talked to a lot of people who've seen him this year and say they like him. But this is kind of what he is, right? He is not going to, not somebody who's going to say get a whole lot stronger between 21 and 24, for example. He's reasonably physically at least ready. There's more question of experience against higher level pitching. What he's done in the majors so far is, yeah, it's fine. It's a 440 Babbitt, right? That's just, you can just take a look at the stat line and say, nope, nope, that's just not, that's fine. That's awesome. It's absolutely not going to last. Um, and 
I will be curious to see, because unlike a lot of guys who come up to the big leagues, and we're dealing with really tiny samples here, he's actually hit breaking stuff okay. Like, usually that's the one thing you expect. Either a guy's going to come to the big leagues and say, whoa, I've never seen velocity like this. But you could see a lot of pretty good velocity in the minors. This is a double-A game the other night. And I think the Yankees rolled out three straight guys who were all hitting 94-95 regularly. Didn't mean they were good, but they were all doing that. You know, or it's they get to the big leagues, like, holy crap, I've never seen a slider like that before, right? And so far, that's not really been an issue for Grissom. I don't know that I put a whole lot of meaning into samples that small, but that is interesting to me. That's the one thing that stood out and says, eh, this guy might be a little bit more advanced as a hitter than the limited experience he had in the last, right? Because he was 19, he signed 19, you know, played a little, tiny bit that summer, misses 20. So it was just last year and half of this year, and almost all of that was below double A. So you would just assume this is not somebody who's going to jump to the big leagues and hit major league pitching right away. Um, you know, that said, he's going to come back down to earth, obviously. Yeah, no one's expecting the, the 439 BABIP underneath this line to continue. But even if you put that into a normal range, this would be fine for someone who on this team can stay in the bottom third of the order, just play good defense, and and that's that's going to work. That's going to be enough. I think it's mm-hmm. kind of interesting, too, though, because Atlanta has to make a long-term decision on Dansby Swanson. He's approaching free agency at season's end, and they've been extending everybody. They're throwing out extensions like candy right now, yes. which is exciting. Players getting paid is cool. Austin Riley getting a big payday. I don't know if that happened while you were gone or just before you took off. but Before. Are they going to keep Dansby Swanson? Is this an indication, seeing that Grissom's at least holding his own very early on and just that he's more advanced for his age than some people expected? Does that mean Dansby Swanson moves on after this season as a free agent? I don't think the two are that connected. Like, I've heard a lot of people. I haven't seen Grissom enough defensively to tell you what I think his ultimate home is. I hear nobody is saying to me, this guy's in no doubt forever shortstop there's at least enough of a chance that he moves off the position he's played second base it's a new position to him in the majors he hasn't looked great there again tiny sample new position etc etc is grissom absolutely their shortstop of the future i just don't think there's enough certainty there to say that now that may also you know still lead them to say we're not going to top the market for dansby swanson you look at all these contracts these extensions that they've signed they're generally somewhat good deals for the team, right? They save some money for the team, at least. And, you know, Swanson's going to hit free agency. I doubt he's going to sign a deal like that, even though, yes, obviously he's a hometown, you know, it's a local player, but he's going to take the most money, as he should, as every player should when given that opportunity. So this may be, you know, I interpret this more as just the the entire picture here as we are not going to... um we're not going to beat the market on Swanson. We're going to make what we consider a fair market offer is my guess. That's what they'll do. And then if somebody else wants to re- just flat out top us and he wants every dime, then, you know, good for him. Go for it. We will go with our internal options. Or maybe they go sign. It's also possible, you know, Grissom's had a great, what, two weeks or so. Yeah, it's possible he doesn't play as well the rest of the season. And they say, this guy is our long-term answer, but we're going to sign a one-year stopgap so Grissom can go spend next year in double and probably mostly triple A, um, or that he can do some kind of job share next year if they determine there is still something he needs to do at the plate. Uh, so speaking of Riley, for a moment, I am blown away at the extension, 10 years, $212 million, mm-hmm. only because 
it's still fresh in my mind, the, the adjustments that he was making when he first broke into the league, right? If you told me three years ago, there's a $200 million extension just around the corner for Austin Riley, I would have said, wow, that's a, that's a lot of growth. But he's done it. And I think the thing that he's done just from last year to this year is he's kept more of the gains than I expected. I thought when we saw him hit 303 with a 367 OBP last year, I thought that was a BABIP-driven line. And it's really not as inflated as I expected to be seeing where he settled in this year. He's striking out a little bit less, still getting to the power just as often. This is legit. And he's hitting the ball in the air a little more often this year, too. He looks like a perennial 30 to 35 home run player who also is going to hit for a decent average and draw enough walks to be your prototypical middle third of the order hitter for at least the first half of that contract. Yep, I absolutely agree. I think, um, you know, I, th- I think it's completely legit. And I think that's one of those um, one of those contracts that I probably like it a little more for the player, to be honest, because there's just enough risk involved in any deal of that length. But this looked to me like, yeah, it's pretty good for both clubs. And you think back to some of the contracts that when they signed Acuna and then especially Ozzy Albies to those long-term deals, we were, you know, I think the almost unanimous reaction was those are terrible deals for the players in and they were and i think that's only continued to be true as those players have continued to produce and be uh you know i mean even acuna getting hurt and losing all that playing time i think he still loses out in the end on a lot of money in that deal and he gets certain date and i understand for a lot of players that may be, may be the more important thing but i think those deals were probably poor choices for the players they should have been holding out for more money or waited to sign whereas you know, the Riley deal to me looks like one that's going to probably work out well for both sides, but be a little better for the player. The Harris one is the other one. I don't know if you wanted to get into that at some point. That was the one where, look, okay, Michael Harris was top 100 prospect coming into the year. I've, you know, I think, been reasonably high on him, but also pointed out there have been some questions with his approach. This is a bet on athleticism and long-term upside, recognizing that there's some baseball skill development that still needs to happen there. Um, they did that early. I don't want to say they made a bad choice. I don't want to say that they jumped the gun, but this was pretty early. That's a big bet that the plate discipline stuff and the pitch recognition stuff that we've seen, we saw it, it happened last year at double A. He made adjustments, but then we're seeing it again this year. This is a pretty substantial bet that he'll figure that out one way or another, whether it's just truly getting better at say picking up, especially off speed stuff, or that you're just saying, Hey, this guy's such a good athlete that he doesn't have to have say, major league average play discipline to still be a really valuable player. That was the one of all these deals I thought, oh, that's that one's pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I could see Atlanta coming out far ahead, though, if the plate discipline looks yes. anything like it did as Harris was in the minors. The second half of last year, when he really turned it around. He finished the year with a sub-20K percentage. That's huge for a player at high A at his age. And he was walking enough, 8.3% walk rate. That's fine. To see the power, the speed, the defense he can play in center field, it's a profile that you would want to bet on if you had the chance, if you were in the position to give him a contract like that and say, we can we can keep Michael Harris longer than we have him under club control. And we can make sure that we're not talking about someone who's among the most expensive players in arbitration. That's probably a risk worth taking. Uh, is hitting the ball on the ground a lot right now. I don't think that's necessarily going to continue as he gets more time in the big leagues. But swinging at pitches outside the zone 44% of the time. That's the the underlying number if you're looking for, for something to track early on to look for progress 
in Harris beyond this season, that's, I think, where most people want to see some growth. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, I wouldn't even add anything to that. I think that's that's exactly it. We have a pretty good idea of what he can do athletically. And that's the thing. He is a huge upside play. Um, you know, if I hadn't, if we didn't have such a clear indication from the first part of last year, too, that, that there was some there were some pitch recognition issues, maybe I would feel a little better about the contract. I probably would have ranked him a little bit higher. But it was like it was quite stark last year. He made adjustments. He was better in the second half. That's also a very positive sign. Um, and I I do want to emphasize also when a guy gets to the majors so quickly like that, you know Harris probably normally spends most of this year in AAA, a good chunk of this year in AAA, and then probably puts up big numbers because lots of guys are putting up big numbers in AAA this year. They're moving from AA, where last year they were using the minor league baseball, to this year AAA. Everyone in AAA is using the major league baseball, and I think it's two of the three AA leagues using the major league baseball. Don't even get me started on that. But, you know, Harris would have gone, played extremely well in AAA, and then the conversation around him, the expectations and the the uh, statistical projections probably all would be a bit different for him. Yeah, in a strange way. We've talked about Jared Kelnick, I don't know, every two or three months on this show since you and I started recording episodes together. It's almost like when you promote a player this quickly and he's not a top, top prospect from the yes. day he's drafted, you can get out in front of expectations. He can come up under this, hey, we need him to play center field if he hits great and people can have a more reasonable expectation that can be exceeded mm-hmm. as opposed to the the Jared Kelnick path where it's this guy needs to mash and he's going to mash right away. And if he doesn't mash, it's a big surprise. Or I just think expectation can get blown out of proportion if you move through each level of the system and continue to destroy baseballs the way some players do. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. So all of this kind of points back to some faster decision-making, just in terms of the time that Harris spent at AA, the time that Grissom spent at AA, the extension for Harris after so little time against big league competition. I remember when I first started covering baseball and playing fantasy baseball and just reading people who, who scout the game and analyze the game, and it seemed like at the time for a position player, a thousand plate appearances. That was the magic number. That was the number yeah. most people would throw at you. It's just because we probably because we like big round numbers. It, that's definitely not what's happening anymore. But Keith, what do you think matters to a team in terms of sample to make a confident decision? And does anything the Braves have done with Harris or anything else we've seen this season shed some light on how teams are thinking now in terms of timetables and sample sizes that matter to them? I heard that. Or numbers similar to that. I knew a 
hitting coach when I was with Toronto who thought it was more like 1500 plate appearances. Of course, it's 20 years ago now, so it's quite different. But that idea that there was some general threshold you wanted your minor league hitters to reach, and it wasn't even so much about where they did it, just to have that much experience in pro ball. I agree that that's kind of gone by the wayside. There are obviously still people who believe in that in some certain amount of time. And I guess probably if you read into my writing, you would see that that's true also, that I have some expectations of players. I don't have a hard number in mind, but that there's an expectation that players will spend a certain amount of time in the minors, hitters especially. Um, You know, and Kalanick's a great example of a guy who pretty much hit everywhere and then got to the big leagues. Maybe a little soon, but I don't think that soon, honestly. It wasn't that much more that much sooner than I expected it to come up and his performance in the minors didn't give us any reason to think he would struggle, but he has struggled and continues to struggle against major league pitching. I still think Jared Kalanick in the long term is going to be a very good major league player. We're dealing with small samples and it may be that he needs a change of scenery. It may be, obviously he's, he has had huge struggles with Seattle and it's possible there is, he's being too hard on himself. I have heard this quite a bit. I was, people say he's a very intense player, etc. But I do think back to your – stepping back to your question, original question, I do think teams are getting away from that idea. Many teams are getting away from that idea of some minimum amount of playing time for minor league position players. And my guess, my interpretation from talking to people at teams is a lot of it is about what they see in um, advanced pitch data. You know, most of which is not available to us. There is not complete TrackMan or StatCast style data available to us really for anywhere in the minors, but particularly for AA and below. What we get is very, very limited if we get anything at all. Most AA parks don't have that stuff installed. Um, not the major league stuff that teams, you know, individual teams might do, but that data is not publicly available. So we don't really have a lot of that information, but teams do. And they are much more, teams are much more likely now than even I would say three years ago, and of course, six, seven years ago, they didn't have this data at all, to allow that to drive promotion decisions, to look and say, this guy is hitting the ball hard enough, consistently enough, with a launch angle, you know, launch angle range that we consider acceptable, and is showing enough success against, say, certain pitch types that we feel comfortable moving him up to the next level, that they feel like they can better anticipate production at the next level and better evaluate a hitter's development to that point. So, you know, for example, Michael Harris, go back to Michael Harris in double A last year. It was pretty evident. I mean, I could just see it from watching him. He's an extreme example. But in the day, even from talking to people with Atlanta, they were fully aware you could first half of last year, you could pitch to this guy pretty easily. And they could see changes in his results on certain pitch types and certain pitch locations in the second half of last year, and while from a general performance level, you might say that's kind of a small sample to work from, at the pitch type level, pitch location level, comparing second half to first half, clearly they did see enough improvement or comfortable enough that that was significant that they were willing to make the promotion. So I think it's the more granular data um, that is probably less noisy. It's still noisy in it, but it's less noisy than some of the more general data that we were used to working with, I would even say three, four years ago, that's driving many of these promotions. In a strange way, it seems like the the advanced tech is a way to quantify things that scouts had to articulate for a long time. Contact quality. Well, now we have a number that measures that. It's not the mm-hmm. not just the sound of the bat, 
or the way the ball jumps off the bat or some of the, the language, some of the things that you would you'd often see or hear when you're talking about a, a future big league player. Now it's hits the ball with a yeah, 12 degree launch angle and ha- yeah. has a 108 max exit velocity as a 19 year old. Like those types of things are, are actually being kind of cooked in and I'm sure they're part of the, the modeling efforts that are happening with pretty much every team around the league. I don't want to speak for the teams that we know are a little data averse, even in, in 2022. <laughs> Let's move on to some other players that have debuted recently. Brett Beatty is getting a chance with the Mets right now, uh, playing some third base and stuck in the bottom third of the lineup for now, which is great. That's that's the system, I think, kind of working where you're a contending team. You're bringing someone up who probably makes your team better. Beatty at the time of his promotion, I think was first in WRC plus at the double A level among qualified hitters. So clearly ready for at least the promotion to AAA that he'd already received. But given the need for the Mets, I thought this actually made sense. What type of player do you think Beatty is going to be? And are you on board with the Mets giving him this chance here down the stretch? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Feel like he's felt like he was ready. If you'd asked me at the start of the season, I pretty sure I probably said it, but even if not, I would have felt like, yeah, this guy's going to come up at some point this year. Uh, he had, I mean, he's hit everywhere. And this guy, for folks who don't really remember, too, I don't want to assume our listeners are, are paying a ton of attention to the draft, but in 2019, he was the Mets' first round pick. But it was a bit of a, uh, I hate to overuse controversial, but it was, it invited a fair bit of comment because he was a 19 and a half year old high school senior. Um, one of the oldest high school seniors I can remember as a significant prospect in any draft. And Generally, I ding guys for that very much so. Um, I ding Colson Montgomery in last year's draft, who I hadn't seen in person. Um, and I have since seen Colson Montgomery in person. He's also playing incredibly well in the White Sox system. You know, obviously, once you get into pro ball and you're playing at an age-appropriate level, we don't care so much. But coming out of the draft, you know, there was a lot of criticism of Beatty as a corner bat who was really old. I saw him. I thought he was really going to hit and end up hitting for power. And that's basically what we've seen. I still think there's, there should be another gear of power there. He's come into more this year. Um, I still think there's a bit more. I'd be very surprised if he hits without becoming a 30 homer guy. That's just what his profile is to me. Reasonable, you know, reasonable to even high walk totals with 30 homers or so. I mean, I think it's a real impact bat. And the biggest question is, has been, will continue to be, does he stay at third base? He has really worked hard on his conditioning to avoid just simply outgrowing the position. There's always a chance he slows down as he gets a little bit older. That's entirely possible. But I'm I'm in. I'm a believer. And I think of that Mets group of prospects, I, I am much more in favor of them bringing him up than bringing up their actual number one prospect, Francisco Alvarez, who I think was fifth on my midseason update. Um, because Alvarez is a catcher, but he's not a very good catcher. The bat is ready. If they just said, screw it, we're going to make Alvarez our DH the rest of the season, I'd say, yep, fine. If you're just giving up on the catching thing or just don't care, fine. But Alvarez is a catcher and not a great one. And having him continue to catch every day or, you know, whatever it is, five days out of six in the minors is the right thing for his development, even if they believe that he can help the big league club with his bat right now. Whereas in Beatty's case, there's nothing he needs to be doing in the minors that he can't just be doing developmentally in the majors. And often for a guy like that, um, with his kind of profile, you want to see what's okay. So what does it look like in the majors with 
you know, they, there's you'll often hear where the game got a little too fast for him. The game sped up for him. Okay, great. Let's see you play third base against the guys, major league hitters who hit the ball harder than anybody else, right? When O'Neill Cruz is up at the plate, <laughs> you better be ready. Yeah. So I want to see that, right? I want to see more of Beatty with that. So I'm much less concerned about, is he going to hit? You know, again, I wasn't super concerned about Jared Kalanick and he hasn't hit. But in Beatty's case, I really believe he's going to hit. If it's not this year, it's going to be pretty soon. Yeah, I mean, like I said, 159 WRC plus at AA this year is a 22-year-old, age-appropriate, good plate skills, plenty of power. One of the guys that I think when you use the uh, minor league stat cast hack, if you look at a baseball savant and, and mess around mm-hmm. with the URLs, you can actually see some stat cast numbers was crushing the ball. Francisco Alvarez was too, by the way. Oh, God, he really does. That's the thing. Alvarez, if Alvarez were not, sorry, I don't mean to hijack this, but I mean, people ask a lot about Alvarez. You probably hear about it too. Like If if Alvarez didn't have a positional question, if he was just a left fielder or whatever, he'd be in the majors. I have no doubt he'd be in the majors. But there's this – if you're the Mets, you're in a you know, a slightly difficult position where this guy could be a superstar if he can just stay back there. He doesn't actually have to be good. He probably doesn't even have to be average. He just has to be able to – stay back there without really hurting the team as compared to say Austin Wells, who's the Yankees first round pick, I believe two years ago, I saw him earlier this week in double a, he he's, he cannot catch. He can't catch or he can't throw. Um, it's just bad all across the board. There's something there with the bat. He may end up a pretty good big leaguer just at another position. Alvarez isn't there. He's better than that, but he's not an average major league catcher or even quite close to it right now. I believe there's the potential for him to get close enough that the bat plays. So if you're the Mets trying to contend right now, trying to win right now, not even contend, you are you do have a developmental quandary here. Do we bring this guy up because the bat can help us or do we let him continue to work on all the defensive stuff he still has to work on in AAA? Right now, at least, they're leaning towards the latter. And, and I respect that. I think that's a, a difficult choice to make, but it does seem like the one they're, they're – it, it seems like they're still willing to think long-term, even though obviously the short-term goals are – uh, pretty significant. What kind of defense are we talking about right now for Alvarez? Are we talking about like Gary Sanchez caliber defense behind the plate? Yeah, it might be. I mean, Sanchez, poor Gary Sanchez, that he's become like the standard for just really ugly catcher defense, right? With with a hose. He can always throw. With Alvarez, I've actually seen him catch okay, probably more 45. But honestly, as I talk to more people who are not affiliated with the Mets, especially I hear a lot more. It's more like 40 behind the plate. Like it's more below average than fringy enough that you're worried it's going to hurt. And I'm not even talking about framing stuff. I'm just talking about receiving, blocking, um, you know, getting to getting rid of the ball, like release mechanics stuff that he needs. Something, some are just things he needs to clean up, but some are things he just really needs to continue to work on. Especially, to, I think one of the problems you run into in on the development side with catchers who have these kinds of issues, the difference between catching, say, a double A staff and catching a major league staff is enormous. It's as big as it's ever been. So you might get guys with stuff in the minors, but guys who are locating, guys who can, you know, all the best quality. You, the one thing you'll catch in the minors, you'll catch plenty of velocity. I don't know if you saw the clip. Harlan, who's uh, Harlan Susanna, who just got traded to the, he was in the Juan Soto trade. Uh, he's with Fredericksburg now, the Nationals affiliate. And he had hit 103 last night. He's in low A. And, you know, there was a little part of me that was like, oh, that's cool. Like, what? How did I get so jaded? Oh, yeah, 103 at low A. 103 as a starter. 
It's normal. That's a thing. Yeah, that's a thing now. Just happens. It's a thing. Yes. But so you'll catch some velocity, but catching guys with really good breaking stuff and who are throwing it for strikes and who are close enough to strikes, like that's a major league thing. And that's, you know, I think a big challenge is with your Alvarez's, um, you know, Diego Cartaya, who's better a better defensive catcher than Alvarez, but still has stuff he needs to work on, right? You're trying to build those guys up, gradually sort of grow them through the system. They catch a little better stuff at each level, a little better stuff at each level, and then suddenly they're going to get to the majors, and it's like three steps at once to catch major league quality stuff. And I wonder, I haven't asked the Mets specifically about Alvarez here, um, just other scouts who've seen him, but I do wonder also if there's a little bit of Geez, you really want to bring this guy up and say, hey, go catch Jacob deGrom. Go catch Max Scherzer. <laughs> right? That's a, that's a lot to ask. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And and by the way, we're trying to win. Trying to win a World Series. Yeah. Right. If you're Pittsburgh right now, of course you can bring Pittsburgh. It's funny. They actually have two pretty good catching prospects, both on the AA roster right now. Henry Davis is rehabbing, but he's on the injured list for Altoona. And they just moved Andy Rodriguez, who they got from the Mets in a trade last year. Trade, not this year. Also a pretty good catching prospect. He's now on the double-A roster. He's only been in Altoona for about 10 days or so. But if you're a club like that and you've got a guy like either of those guys, if either of those guys were in AAA, you could say, yeah, we'll bring him up. Fine. We don't care if you struggle catching in September because we're not trying to win right now. We're just trying to develop. The Mets are trying to do both. And that's a huge challenge. And actually, I really respect that the Mets haven't tried to rush Alvarez because you think the owner clearly wants to win. The, the mandate for this season has been win. We need to get into the playoffs and do something. You've got a new GM there, too, who I'm sure is thinking, I want to, you know, I want my first year to be successful. It sets the tone for the rest of my term. Frankly, it's the kind of thing that gets you a contract extension. Um, and yet they're clearly saying, nope, there's a long-term plan, and we're going to let this guy spend more time in the minors. I'm not saying he doesn't get – he might show up in September, but they've got about three weeks left in the minor league season, and – I'm guessing Alvarez stays there for all or most of that. Since you brought up Austin Wells, are we talking like Kyle Schwarber behind the plate? So corner outfield is inevitable for a guy like Wells. And does he does he hit enough? He cannot catch. He just can't catch. I mean, it was it was extremely ugly. Like just routine catching and blocking. There was one at the end of the, and I had already kind of concluded, and I'd heard this from other scouts too. There's no chance this guy catches. And so, and I'm watching the game, and it's really bad, and it's a well below average arm. I, Austin Wells can hit. I'm not saying he stinks, just so people, just you know, Yankee fans are like, why are you killing this guy? I'm just talking about the defense. And so finally, it's late in the game. I move over to the, I was on the third base side to watch Addison Barger's last at bat against New Hampshire. Um, plus Wells is a left-handed hitter also. So I'm, so I'm over there to try to get the last couple at-bats from these guys. And there was one, it was, it was actually probably a high strike and Wells just sticks the glove up and it just pops right out. I'm like, oh my God, like, this is little league stuff. Mm. Like, you got it. That's not the reason I think he can't catch, but it was very much the icing on that particular cake. It's like, if I was still having some doubts at that point, I would have just been like, ugh. Right? Just... You know, you go from like 40 to 35 on the scouting report. It's just, we knew this in college, right? The Yankees drafted a bat. They made, they made some noises about we think we can improve him as a catcher. And some guys have made those improvements. Wells is, is a hitter. 
And he's going to end up somewhere else, left field, first base. I don't know. I do think he's going to hit. And I think he's going to have some kind of major league role with the bat. Um, I just can't see him as a catcher. By the way, just like I'm, I'm going to write probably over the weekend because I'm going to try to see them one more time. Weather permitting, I'm going to see that club one more time um, uh, this weekend. But uh, their first four hitters in the Somerset Patriots lineup, Anthony Volpe, Yankees top prospect, who smoked three balls, made two really good plays at short in – just create like stole a base that was just nobody. He had no business getting that stolen base too. fairly late in the game too. And he just read the pitcher, right? And just, just took off. It was like a one man show. He was just doing everything. He leads off Everson Pereira, who was a $2 million guy, I think back in 17 or 18, but has had a ton of injuries. Had a really nice year in high. gets to double A. He's definitely a prospect, more tools than production. He's second. Austin Wells is third, and Elijah Dunham, who was a lower draft pick, uh, might have even played a little independent ball, but it's actually reasonably toolsy for a guy of that profile, hitting fourth. And it's like, this is awesome. Why can't every minor league game be like this? <laughs> and by the way, New Hampshire had two prospects, Elvis Martinez and Addison Barger, and um, the Yankee starter was Will Warren, who's a reliever prospect, but he's had a nice season so far as a starter there. Man, every day should be this productive. And it was the first game I'd been to since before my vacation. I was like, this is great. I needed this. Take some time off or things starts coming up. Keith, which is it's what, yep. you, what you're looking for. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'll say something nice about Austin Wells that's a little bit unexpected. As a base stealer so far, he's 27 yes! for 27 as a pro. So it's not as though he lacks athleticism. If you can go 27 for 27 as a base stealer in... Uh, doing the back of the napkin math, about 170-ish minor league games across a few different levels. That's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Right, some Kevin McReynolds stuff there. Hey, he's got pop, gets on base. I mean, there's there's a ton of things he's he does well runner, offensively. So he clearly knows what he's doing, yeah. right? That's very interesting to me. I mean, he was a catcher. Maybe he's got some idea along that. But yeah, it's pretty good. Speaking of catchers, Shea Langoliers is up right now for the A's. And of course, they still have Sean Murphy. So we're seeing Langoliers DH a lot. And I've wondered if teams are are getting more comfortable if they have two capable young catchers. I, I still count Murphy as young because there's years of he control is. left. He is he's young. Absolutely. Yeah, he's young. You got two guys that should be in the big leagues that, that hit like big league catchers that play the position well defensively, and you don't really have a DH. Fine. Let share the workload. Let these guys take some of the wear and tear off their bodies by not by not stacking all the playing time on one guy and then just waiting on the other player forever. So I'm on board from the pure development perspective of just saying splitting evenly even would be fine. And they might trade Sean Murphy this offseason and deal with that logjam that way. Uh, but as a hitter, Shay Langoliers was putting together a great season at AAA. And I'm just really interested to see what kinds of swing decisions he's going to make as he gets more time in the big leagues. And he's having a more typical introduction to big league pitching. So is Brett Beatty, for that matter, right? Compared to Von Grissom, who we talked about up top, who's doing nothing wrong at the plate right now. We're seeing an O-swing percentage above 40% for Langoliers, but when he connects, he's hitting the ball very hard. So I think yeah. it's an encouraging start despite the the high strikeout rate and you know the, the low average, low OBP initially through these first eight games. I think he looks his, like his upside is going to look a lot like Sean Murphy's. Um, and I thought it was very interesting at the point they acquired him. It's like, oh, did you just get Sean Murphy's replacement? And by the way, he looks a lot like Sean Murphy. Um, they're in a really, they're in a good spot there. 
I mean, I think they've, I, my reviews of their trades have been kind of mixed. Some I really liked, some I less so, but the way that they've worked this out behind the plate, Murphy's an incredibly valuable player because of the years of control, because he's really good defensively in a critical position with a bat that really plays there. They should get a King's Ransom for that one. And, and yet also are in a position where they can say, they don't actually, we don't actually have to trade him. We'll probably trade him now because it makes the most sense, but we don't actually have to trade him right here. They don't necessarily have a first baseman right now either. So you could play your other catcher they could. as first base if you want to have some defensive value and then still float someone else to the DH spot. So the, the good thing about the, the complete tear it down is that you have flexibility, the favorite word mm-hmm. of pretty much every front office person in the game right now. We love flexibility. Yep. We love financial flexibility, positional flexibility, every kind mm-hmm. of flexibility. Oh, yeah. There's going to be more prospects coming. We know uh, Cade Cavalli is going to debut on Friday for the Nationals. Yeah, this seems like a pretty big win for the Nationals because as you've discussed on your own podcast, and I think we've talked about it a bit on this show over the last couple of years, the Nationals don't have a very good track record of developing big league pitching. They trade a lot of guys, yeah. so that certainly you know takes the bottom out a little bit, but even for a guy that they took in the first round to be getting to the big leagues, a guy who didn't take 1-1 like a Steven Strasburg, this is sort of new territory and, and part of what has to go right over the course of this rebuilding effort, getting guys from the minor leagues to the major leagues and having them find success. So what are you expecting from Cade Cavalli upon arrival in the big leagues? Um, he has pretty good stuff, premium stuff, um, plays down a little bit i think a little bit below the velocity but the big thing that has held him back he ripped through high a for like a month last year and then double a generally was very successful last year because he could just overpower guys and then he got to triple a but even in double a you could start to see some cracks there that the command wasn't very good and he got to triple a and he really struggled and he's gone back to triple a this year and he's been better um he doesn't throw enough strikes overall, but it's really a command issue. And he could come to the majors and overpower some teams. He could have a couple outings where he just blows it by guys, you know, depending on the lineup or just, you know, he has a particularly strong night for stuff. But I do worry that the command is really going to bite him. And it may be less of, you know, just, you know, control is really just about throwing strikes to me, whereas command is about locating. And he's a guy who who's going to miss and give up contact, give up quality contact as a result. That's the thing I worry about um, with him in the short term. I do think long term, he's a starter. I think he's a starter, but he may end up a guy who's like more like a mid-rotation starter, even though you look at the pitches and say, that's an ace. But I don't know that there's ever the kind of command that you'd need for that to happen. Um, By the way, to your point, since uh, Anthony Rendon was the Nationals' first round pick in 2011, here are their first round picks since then. Lucas Giolito, who's obviously turned into a good big leaguer. He's got 10 war, but it all happened somewhere else. Eric Fetty, disaster, I would say. Probably a DFA candidate at this point, non-tender candidate um, at this this offseason. Dane Dunning, a lot of injuries. Okay, but happened somewhere else. Carter Keyboom, disaster. Um, those two guys were in the same year. They were two. The Nats had an extra first round pick. They may have actually both been comp picks. Seth Romero, who has been a both an injury, he's been often injured and had a lot of disciplinary issues. Mason Denenberg, poor guy, has been una- completely unable to get healthy. Jackson Rutledge, 2019, uh, command issues and some health issues. Cavalli, 
So Cavalli could be the first real success for them since Giolito among first-round picks. And then the last two, Brady House has been very good when healthy for Fredericksburg this year, and Elijah Green was their pick this year. And I like both those guys. They're just many years away. That's a long stretch, even though obviously the Nats drafted pretty low in the first round between, yeah, Rendon and House. They were below pick 15 for all of those other guys I mean. So they picked, those first-round picks were all in the back half. But still, that's not great, right? That's a long time without a real success. So there's a little bit riding here on Cavalli and, you know, and House and Green, obviously. If this team's going to turn it around. They need these first rounders to, to pan out. Yeah. And Cavalli, I think that description, you know, mid-rotation starter that lacks the command to be better than that. It probably piles up a lot of strikeouts along the way, but has those frustrating outings mm-hmm. where it goes three and two thirds, goes four and a third, just gets knocked around. Home runs bite him because he's missing over the plate or walks bite him because he's missing out of the zone. That's... That's sort of what he seems like. Exciting for sure, uh, yep. but a little bit inconsistent would not be a, a surprising development as he acclimates to big league competition. The late season prospect promotions are good for the reasons we talked about earlier, right? You're getting players to the big leagues who deserve to be there, even though you could probably argue Corbin Carroll was ready two, three months ago. I mean, Corbin Carroll, mm-hmm. if Corbin Carroll hadn't missed time most of last season with that shoulder injury, I think he might have debuted in April of this year, Keith. I mean, he's just, he's ridiculous. He's tearing up the minors, doing everything in that offensive profile that looks like he's going to be a star. Yep. He was my number one prospect at the midseason update. I have been a Carroll guy since the draft. I actually, he was in the 2019 draft class. I ranked him fourth. I actually had him over CJ Abrams and over Riley Green, if I remember correctly, in that draft class. And um, he went 16th. Um, my argument at the time was if this guy was six foot one rather than five nine or five ten, uh, he, we would have been talking about him with the first overall pick, quite possibly. Um, that was the Rutschman, right? Rutschman Vaughn, Wit, Rutschman Wit Vaughn in order draft class. Um, and yeah, he's done everything. He's done absolutely everything. He continues to play good defense in center. He's hitting for power. He's hitting um, for average. He is getting on base. He can really run. Um, and converts that, you know, uses that for said, very high success rates on the bases as well. Um, he's continued to rake in Reno. The only thing I'll say is, um, and I, again, I'm Team Carroll, obviously. I put him first. And when I circulated my lists to some people I really trust in various front offices, on the scouting side, on the analytics side, R&D side, a couple of executives, Carroll got a lot of votes for first overall. It was actually mostly Carroll and Gunnar Henderson were the two guys who got the most um, support to be the number one overall prospect. And there were a bunch of other names, and they're all in my top six or seven. The only thing I will say about Carroll, <clears throat> excuse me, he played in two pretty great hitters parks this year. When the wind blows out in Amarillo, the ball flies, and it blows out there quite a bit. And then Reno is, I don't know, what is that, 5,000 feet above sea level? Like, it's pretty high. It's not quite a mile high, I think. But pretty, it's pretty high, high, yeah. Yeah, so he's hit in some pretty really, really favorable environments. It's just something to consider, right? That Carroll's line this year, combined between the two levels, 310, 424 on base, 611 slug. 23 homers, 21 doubles, and eight triples, by the way. So I know a lot of people like to argue, just put the doubles and triples together if you're trying to talk about power, because the triples are more about speed, right? So what is that? 29, 23, 52 extra base hits in 90 games, 31 steals and 36 attempts. Oh, and by the way, he's a legit center fielder. Okay, that's that. That's pretty great. Just 
temper the expectations for the short term just a little bit. He's played in really, really great hitting environments, and that may be skewing um, a little bit of the perspective. I still think he's a superstar. And a lot of this, too, is his makeup, his intelligence, his work ethic. The, the praise this kid gets is like very few players I have ever heard about from any organization. And the Diamondbacks have been consistent about this since before the shoulder injury, that this is just among the best players they have ever been around in terms of willingness to learn, interest in learning, um, converting what he learns into actual on-field production, too. There's lots of kids who are you know, all sort of eager beaver types, right? And But it doesn't actually show up on the field. Carroll has been one of those players where he wants to learn something, he learns it, and then it starts to show up in his play in a relatively short period of time. So you know, I, do th- I don't think he has to go on the 40-man roster for another year. I could have those rules wrong. I do that a lot. But I would bring him up at this point, maybe just when Reno's season ends, because he's got to play for them next year, right? This this is a kind of a stop screwing around with service time stuff. This guy is the, a future of the fran- – he's one of the futures of the franchise. They have quite a few of them, as it turns out right now. Get this guy up. Get him the, the proverbial cup of coffee in the major league clubhouse. You know, getting to know the coaches and the manager and a few of the players he'll be with next year. You know, with the idea, hey, you're going to come up, you're going to play 12 games, and we don't care if you if you struggle. Right? We'd rather you come up and get a little bit of that, so that whenever it is you come up next year, whether it's opening day or, or May 1st or whatever, it's not the first time. I'm I'm I've become a big believer in that over the last at least five years or so, that there is actually some difficult to measure value in that, but it just sort of smooths the entry for the following season. Um, and especially if you're a club like the Diamondbacks, where you'll probably be bringing up a few guys over the course of next year. they got a bunch of pitching prospects who are fairly close. And I don't know if Jordan Lawler actually gets there next year, although he seems like he's going to try to hit his way there by the end of next year. So if you're the Diamondbacks, yeah, maybe you're thinking, yeah, this guy, let's get this guy there so we're not bringing up you know, six or seven really talented prospects, rookies over the course of, you know, a four-month period next season. At least Carroll's gotten that little bit of a taste to start this year, to end this year. That 2019 draft class is shaping up to be a really good draft class. Bonkers. I mean, Rutschman, right? Witt, Vaughn, one through three. Blade is in the big leagues now. Riley Green, C.J. Abrams, Nick Lidl. Those are the first seven picks. Josh Young would have been there if not for getting hurt. He'll, he's he, up he's soon. He's homered twice since we started this podcast. He looks ready. He might get a late season yeah. call up from the Rangers. Langoliers was the ninth pick yeah. in that draft. Hunter Bishop at 10 might be the first player from this class that you look yeah. at and say, yep, that, that was a mistake. Had risk and has gotten hurt also. Double whammy. But I, he's he's not going to work out. Alec Manoa went 11th. Brett Beatty went 12th. Bryson Stott went 14th. Carroll at 16th. Quinn Priester yeah. is going to be a big leaguer. He's been really 18th. good. Zach Buchanan had a great article on him earlier this week. Um George Kirby at 20. Kirby, yep. Kirby at 20. 24 strikes to start the game the night before we recorded this, right? That's reasonably impressive. He's got really good stuff. Yeah. Daniel Espino was 24th. He's going to be an impact oh, yeah. big leaguer. Ethan yep. Small has already pitched in the big leagues. He went 28th. And mm-hmm. Volpe, who you mentioned earlier, went Volpe. 30th. That, I mean, and there's still guys in the, the supplemental keep, round. You could keep going. Michael Bush, Corey Lee, Dre Jameson. Wow. My God. Yeah. That is a fantastic draft class. That, that was a fun one. I don't think I knew at the. T- I don't think I fully appreciated at the time how good the class was. I I knew how good the top ten was. Now, with obviously the benefit of, benefit of three years of hindsight and data and, and seeing more of these guys in pro ball, it's like, yeah, 
That's a great draft class. That's a really great draft class. That's one will be, there'll be some fun debates and conversations. You know, should they have taken this guy or that guy, et cetera. And God, I, I actually, I'm pretty sure I had Vaughn just over wit because Vaughn was such a polished hitter across the board in college. But that was, you know, it's one spot. It doesn't really make a difference, but clearly it should have been the other way around. Witt might actually end up the best player in the draft class. Totally possible. I think it's going to be oh. a, a long, long source of debate for us. So who, like who is the best one. player? The, yeah, the good arguments, right? Not the, not the, you know, not your typical Twitter argument. The good. It'll be redrafted several times. It'll be fun to redraft it. It was also the Grissom and Harris draft class, 2019. They were just not first rounders, so loaded. Oh yeah. That cl- that draft was super fun. Last player we're going to talk about, Gunnar Henderson, might debut before the end of this season. And oh God, he ought to. Part of it's just the Orioles are still hanging around in the wild card race, even though you mm-hmm. can you could look at everything about their team and say they're a notch below the other teams that are vying for that spot. They're not that far away. I was looking at this yesterday in terms of their overall offensive output. The Orioles are pretty much in step with the Tampa Bay Rays. People don't you know, look at the Rays and say they're not a playoff team. Their pitching is their mm-hmm. strength, but their offense is good enough. And in terms of pitching, the Orioles pitching is comparable to the Cardinals pitching, just in terms of its overall value this season. And people aren't picking apart the Cardinals saying that's not a playoff caliber team because of their right. pitching. So if you Frankenstein it together and look at how well they've been playing three consecutive winning months Likely, if it, unless they collapse in August. I don't think they have enough games to go under 500 for this month. Now they bring up Gunnar Henderson. Why not? Like they and they're they seem like a team that's pretty loose for having a lot of young players. Like they're they're playing with house money. Expectations were not on them to be in this position. So they'll be tested. They've got a bunch of matchups still against the Blue Jays and a few other teams in the race. So we'll, we'll know very soon if this is real or not. But Gunnar Henderson probably makes them better upon arrival. And clearly has a very bright long-term future. Yes. I think a superstar. Number two on my midseason prospect update. Um, can play shortstop. Has actually played. I'm actually check, I'm trying to. Yeah, he's played more shortstop total. Wait, that's close. 49, 47. Yes, he's played more shortstop total this year than third base. Had to make sure <laughs> I was had that correct. It's close. Um, can play short is a potential gold glover at third. Like a 70 defender, if not better, at third. I've had one scout say there's some Scott Rowland there. Mm. You know, take that, right? To me, Scott Rowland's a Hall of Famer, 70 career war. Yeah, I'd be pretty good with that outcome. Kids worked his tail off, too. Like he has just become, he was talented. He was considered a first round talent in 2019 when the Orioles took him in the second round, paid him first round bonus. So it's, it's not a shock that he's turned into this caliber of player, but he, at the time of the draft, there were certainly enough questions. Could he be, you know, could he stay at shortstop long-term? What's going to happen to, you know, is there going to be enough power there? How is he going to do against better quality pitching? This kid has done a tremendous amount working on his defense more than anything else, working on conditioning, never out of shape, but like his body looks really great now. And I think really refining his approach at the plate, just across the board, he has done so many things well to become the prospect that he is. And he, I think he's going to hit for average. I really think he's going to get on base. That's probably the most impressive thing. And again, I saw him last year. That wasn't great. That was his approach. He drew walks last year, but it was not that kind of approach, right? This was a guy who was probably just too good for a ball pitching. It's like, I know a ball from a strike. 
It's a little different now. He's doing it against much better quality pitching and showing much more. Um, uh, he's much much more discretion in what pitches to swing at and not swing at. It, this is good approach. This is good patience. Um, he's a he's he, he's a, a guy I really have enjoyed because of where I live. I've seen a good bit of him. It's a guy I really enjoy watching because it's just continuous improvement. It's a talented player from the start who's continued to improve. And honestly, the Orioles could bring him up and he could help them in multiple ways. I do think long-term, and I'm talking about this season, I do think long-term he's going to end up at third base because there's just going to be, he's actually going to be more valuable as a third baseman because the defense is so good. It's better to have a 70 defender at third than a 50 defender at short. Um, also, Joey Ortiz, who I was very high on coming into the year, got off to a really kind of rough start after he missed almost all of last season with a shoulder injury. And maybe that's what held him back. Maybe it was a little bit of rust. I don't know. But he has been really rolling the last two months or so. He's like started to turn into back into the player I thought he was going to be last year. He did a swing change during the pandemic. Looked great last year. Arbitrary endpoints here, but just July 1st to through uh, last night, August 24th. 351 average, 418 on base, 637 slug, 11 homers, 13 doubles in 43 games, 19 unintentional walks and 24 strikeouts. And he's a real shortstop. This guy was a defense only guy coming out of the draft out of University of New Mexico and the swing stunk. I saw him that summer for Aberdeen when Aberdeen was short season. I was like, well, that's not going to work. And he comes back out of the pandemic, totally different swing, got stronger too. But, you know, that kind of like Henderson, maybe more dramatic, but you know, let's give these guys credit. But what they did, this guy went, totally remade his swing. He is a completely different player. He went from a guy who was questioning whether he'd be anything more than last man on a major league roster to this is an above average regular at shortstop. Yeah. And I just, I think when you look at the Orioles right now, if you're going to play Rugnet Odor less and play someone like Henderson every day, that's a pretty yeah. big upgrade. Playing Odor less is just a win, right? Right. Step right one, there. play Odor yeah, less. Agreed. Step two, play a good player. And I think that's probably going to happen. How about that? Yes. We are going to go. Uh, before we sign off, just a quick reminder, you can get a subscription to The Athletic for a dollar a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash baseball show. You can find Keith on Twitter at Keith Law. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Monday. Have a great weekend. 